0: I walked through a county courthouse square and on a park bench, an old man was sitting there. I said, your old courthouse is kinda run down. He said, no, it'll do for our little town. I said, your old flag bowl's kinda leaned a little bit and that's a ragged old flag you got hanging on it. He said, have a seat and I said down, is this the first time you've come to our little town? I said, I think it is. He said, I don't like to brag but we're kind of proud of that ragged old flag. Well, with the right kind of maneuvering, the lid stayed on top of things in Austin for a little while. That was about a month before school was over. And that year, my brother Edgar, the oldest brother uh, uh, in my family, uh, had been teaching school in Texas Tech. He was a, a law professor, uh, I mean, a architect professor at Texas Tech at that time. And they did not work in the summertime, so Edgar came and visited in Austin during the summertime. And so uh, Papa knew he was going to, Edgar was going to come down and and bring his family with him. And uh, he told us, I said, we don't know how Edgar thinks on this clan matter, and we're not going to discuss this. It's not, everybody's got a right to their own thoughts, so you just keep quiet and none of us say anything about the clan at all. And we just hope that Edgar is not involved in the matter. But anyway, Edgar was a good singer, and when Papa drew out of the Baptist church in South Austin, Edgar didn't. He was in the choir and had been, so, and he was a good church member, belonged to the Baptist church there. And so when he come home that, that summer uh, in 23, uh, they were, had a big uh, tent down on, on Monroe, uh, East Monroe and Congress Avenue, where they, a tabernacle they called it. And uh, they it it, it, it it was for the church. they get getting trying to raise money to build a new church there. And Edgar become a member of the choir. Edgar weighed about 150 pounds. Is about all. But he was a good singer. And so uh, he went down to the uh, choir one Sunday night. Uh, it must have been in June, just a month or so after Papa had had the altercation with the Ku Klux, It had gotten all the publicity, and, and uh, we'd never discussed the question at home, but. Apparently, Edgar was well informed with what had happened. I should think he would be. But uh, they, uh, that Sunday night, well, uh, the, there were just numerous visitors came to, to, the, to the tabernacle uh, uh, for some reason. And Edgar, being on the choir, he knew that there that was a, a, an outlandish number of people. And he just knew that they didn't all come down there to hear the preacher. But the preacher did preach what would call a clan sermon and bragged on these uh, organizations such as, as the Klan were. And it kind of insulted Edgar a little bit, cause, but he just couldn't bring himself to believe that uh, that the church would do that. Well, anyway, when the uh, uh, services were just about over, the preacher had finished his sermon. Well, back in the back of the crowd, and they were standing in room only. They were standing in the aisles. Well, it opened up in the back, the center aisle, and three Klansmen, all dressed in their robes, come marching down the main, main aisle. So... Edgar was back up back at the preacher in this, uh, and on the on platform up there. It's a podium of some kind. And he stepped down in front of the preacher. And these people didn't know Edgar. They knew Earl and knew Papa, but Edgar hadn't been here during all this clan trouble. And they didn't know that he was one of the Shelton boys. But Edgar said, he told me, that, that he would just outrage the idea of them knowing that he was a Shelton and up there, or the church people knowing that he was a Shelton and up there. And they invited these people in there. to, And he took it as a personal insult. Well, anyway, the three clansmen came up, and they thought Edgar was going to receive the money for the church and make a big ovation about it. Well, instead of that, Edgar jerked the mask off of the clerk that had the money in an envelope in his hand. I guess it was the money. And anyway, he kicked him in the face, and, and somebody cut the lights off, and all hell broke loose. But well, there was a bunch of local policemen there because they were members of the clan. They came out to clap and cheer when this donation was made. Well, they arrested Edgar and took him to the city hall. And uh, they did let him make a call to Papa. And I happened to be home, as in the summertime, and I never will forget what what Papa said. Uh, they told him that they had that girl over there and that he ought to know about it. And Papa said, yes, I ought to know about it. He said, you put my boy in that jail for what he did, and I'll burn the damn thing down. Well, he got in that little old Chevrolet, and away he went, and he went up the third floor without waiting for the elevator. And uh, he told them, said, I'm going to take this boy home. He's not going to make Bonner do anything else. And you try to stop me. Well, they didn't try to stop him. Edgar went home that night, and Papa was very proud of him for what he had done. But someone filed a complaint uh, against Edgar for disturbing, disturbing public worship. Now, let me go back and say what happened after Edgar was arrested and taken to town. Uh... There was Mr. John LaPrail who owned the land right next to us on on West Live Oak Street. It's called the LaPrell Place, and the uh, Catholic Church is on that land now. And Mr. LaPrell was a good neighbor of ours, and he was a member of the Baptist Church and one of the biggest contributors to it. And so, of course, they had some sort of a, they got the lights back on, and they tried to get some kind of of an order set up and, and, and explain what was happening, and Mr. LaPlale made this speech, uh, so we heard later on. He got up and said, Whenever it gets to where this church needs money that bad, they're not going to get any more from me. And so I am resigning my membership in the church. It practically broke the church up. And then it so happened that Dan Moody was the district attorney in Austin at that time. And Dan was, um, later on, he became best man at my brother Polk's wedding, and he was a friend of our family. and He'll be mentioned again several other times in this tape. But Dan decided, instead of being uh, uh, that Edgar had violated the law by disturbing public worship, that the Klan had, had done it by coming into the church in any such manner as that. And he had the grandeur to investigate who these three Klanmen were, and... Uh, yeah.
1: Well, all hell was, uh, broke loose then. There was another stir. And so, uh, of Papa was glad to know that Edgar felt like he did without being lectured about it. So then it's going to have a, 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 a meeting, a hearing, a, what they call preliminary trial for Edgar was charged with disturbing public worship and senator T.A. McGregor was a, a big uh, uh, backer of Papa's and uh, he was anti Klu Klux Klan and he was also a big friend of the Ferguson's so uh, McGregor was going to be Edgar's lawyer at this hearing. He set it off two or three weeks I don't know when it was but I was there and so they was going to hold it upstairs in the district courtroom in the old Walton building which was the courthouse at 11th and Congress Avenue at that time and uh, instead of holding it in the Justice of Peace Court, where the generally held those, they knew there's going to be just uh, hundreds of people wanting to hear about it. So they were going to hold it in the District Court, which is the biggest auditorium they had around that area then. So uh, that is about the time that old Buck Simpson was one of our boys. Buck had been back from the war and been one of the greatest war heroes, except for uh, Sergeant York. And
0: now this is in June, and it's warm. And so, Papa went over to the window, look down, and there was an old boy from South Austin named, we called him Country Day. His uh, people lived out close to the Deaf and Dumb Institute, and uh, we knew that, uh, that Country was a clucker. We knew all of them, really. Uh, we had information, a means of getting that information, and so Country was down there bragging, making a brag. He had about six or eight people around him, maybe a bigger crowd than that. And he was saying that he, uh, he uh, Edgar was a good shelter. And he went to the church, a church member, and he didn't want to whoop Edgar. He wanted to whip Earl. Earl was the main one. That's the one he was going to whip. And he's making loud enough talk where you'd hear him up in the, on the second floor of the, uh, of the building, up there in the courtroom. And so Papa called Buck over and said, Now, Buck, he said, You, you can hear old country down there making his brags. And he said, Now, if Earl goes down there, he's going to have to kill him. And uh, that's not, we don't want to have a killing here today. He said, Now, you've been wanting to whip a clue, Club." You go down there, Buck, and you whip old old country, and I'll pay you fine. Well, that's all Buck needed. He walked through the crowd, he bounced through them, and went down those steps three or four at a time. And we stayed up there to see what Buck was going to do. Well, he marched out, and he nudged his way through the crowd that country was talking to, and he got country day by the shirt front with one hand. He said, country? We could hear Buck, too. He's talking so Papa could hear him. He said, country? You talk like you're the meanest son of a bitch in Travis County. you going to admit that I'm meaner than you, or I'm going to kick your ass all the way from the foot of these steps to the bottom of the river bridge, which was 11 blocks away. And the whole country, the the, the the circumstances changed. He knew Buck was a fighter, and he knew Buck was going to whip him, and he just ate crow, and, and that was the last of him, and that ended the little melee down there. I do remember that uh, yeah. Senator T.H. McGregor was, uh, was Edgar's lawyer. Of course, Papa couldn't be, be his lawyer, but T.H. McGregor, he would run for governor on the Ferguson ticket when Ferguson ran for president of the United States, the American Party, a few years before that. And that's just another story. But uh, they didn't do anything. Edgar was never—they uh, dismissed it. Of course, uh, with uh, Dan Moody handling the prosecution, there wasn't anything to do but end it. Because he wasn't going to prosecute in that matter, he wanted to prosecute the other side. So our family was united on this issue. Some of the after shots of this would be this. Several years later, I was trying uh, a, a divorce case for a lady named Teresa Alt that I represented, and it's in the old Walton building. And Judge James R. Hamilton was the federal, was the district judge, not the federal judge, but the district judge, and his office was up in the old Walton building. And in those days, he had tried the uncontested divorce cases in uh, in the chambers, in the judge's chambers. And uh, this must have been about 1929 or 30, because I had uh, gotten to start to practicing law. And uh, and I, I, one day at noon, uh, I went in to Judge Hamilton's office and to try this divorce case from his own. And uh, we got in there. Well, uh, she, she uh, made the case out, and uh, when. Uh, we got through with the case where Judge Hamilton said, uh, uh, you say your name is Teresa Alt." He said, uh, do you ever work for the uh, long-distance uh, the telephone company? And she said, yes, Judge. Uh, I still work for the long-distance telephone company. And then Judge Hamilton turned to me and said, Emmett, I want to tell you a story that happened back in the Ku Klux days, about 1923, and that's about six or seven years ago. But he said, one night, he said, uh, your, your father and I were on the same side against the Ku Klux, and all the lawyers were against the Ku Klux, and those for law and order, and uh, uh, they were threatening my life along with your father's life. And he said, one night about 12 o'clock, my phone rang, and um, uh, a voice said, this is the long-distance operator here at the Austin Exchange. He said, are you Judge James R. Hamilton? And so I assured her that I was. Judge Hamilton then continued, he said, uh, this lady then, this voice on the phone, told me that uh, there was a telephone conversation going on between a man named Bill Hanger of Fort Worth and Dr. J.E. Howes in Austin about uh, how they were going to uh, kill me, and said, "Uh, uh, Judge, would you like to listen in on that conversation? And I assured her that I would. And she connected me in on the long-distance line on a conversation between Mr. Hanger of Fort Worth and Dr. Howes in Austin, and they described how they were going to go about killing me. They didn't quite make it. He said, I have never met this lady before. He said, I made it a point to stay away from her because I didn't want anybody in the clan ever to know about her." To nec- uh, this conversation she'd let me listen in on. But he said, of course, I'm going to grant her a divorce. There was another interesting I- incident that happened. As I said, Dr. C.E. Evans in San Marcos, head of the college down there, uh, and his brother, Hiram W. Evans, was the head of all the state Klu Klux, the state organization, I think he called them Grand Clegal or Grand Cyclops or something. But anyway, Hiram W. Evans lived in Dallas, and he was the head of all the Klu Klux in Texas. And there was his brother, C.E. Evans, in San Marcos, just being thoroughly against them, bitterly against them. And uh, his brother and Dallas was, um, uh, was the head of him. And so Hiram W. Evans wanted to come down and make a, a talk and appear before the, the Klan organization in San Marcos because it was a hotbed. And uh, he had to almost because he was invited to come down there. So he let his brother Cecil know that he was coming down to make a talk to the Klu Klux Klan in San Marcos. And Dr. Evans told me this, while this is going on, he, he found out how we how my daddy was in Austin, and he called me in, or we I don't know whether he called me in for the specific purpose to tell me this or not, but about that time, uh, we had this conversation. And he said that his brother came down and let him know what he was going to be there, and he said, "I told you I told him. I said, Harm, you are my brother, and I love you as a brother. but you cannot come down here and stay in my home and address the Ku Klux Klan." Now, whenever you want to come down here as my brother, you are welcome in my home, but you cannot stay in my home when you make this sort of, on this sort of a mission. And Dr. Evans would not let him stay at, 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 on, at his home on the campus when he made that, when he made that trip. Another instance at the San Marcos, I was taking history at that time uh, in the, I believe it, it was in 23 or 24 under Rita Murphy. There's a building named after Rita Murphy now down in San Marcos. She was my history teacher. And uh, she, uh, she, of course, being a member of the faculty, she was of the same frame of mind that Mr. Birdwell and and Dr. Evans was. But anyway, during our history class, during uh, uh, there was a fellow named Robertson Felix Robinson, who had, uh, was the Klan candidate for governor, and Mrs. Ferguson was running against the Klan at that particular uh, at that particular time. And so uh, uh, we got to discussing politics in the history class, and and the question came up about Mr. Robinson from Dallas being the the Klan candidate, and. And he was, uh, uh, and that Mrs. Ferguson was uh, was the uh, anti clan candidate, and the, we uh, she let everybody discuss it pro and con, and and the worst that uh, the, the anti-Ferguson people could say was that, that Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Ferguson or G- Governor Jim was crooked, and and uh, then when we got through our discussion, uh, Mrs. Murphy, uh, Miss Murphy it was, made this remark. She said, "Well." Whenever it comes to be a choice between a a fool or a knave, I will take the knave every time. It startles me sometimes to think of all the things that I forgot in history and some of the things that I remember. That same year, Mr. A.W. Birdwell, being on the faculty at San Marcos, was invited to make a talk about his his own, anything he wanted to choose about, if the uh, old settlers or the... uh, the Confederate Union at Driftwood, Texas, and uh, uh, I went up there, and uh, I happened to be there anyhow, because the Cheltons uh, were, that's, that was our main meeting each year, was at the Driftwood reunion. Mr. Birdwell got up and talked for 30 minutes on a topic that showed the, the uh, history of these different organizations, without ever naming the Klan at all, but he just went through the history of the of the different organizations, the bigotry and things like that over over time. And in how they all wound up in the hole or wound up dying sooner or later. And I knew that several members or, of the of the clan lived up there and, or, or were, were sympathetic with the clan. And when he got through with that lecture, without ever mentioning the clan, he convinced every one of those people, and I talked to three or four of them, without them knowing uh, uh, why I was doing it and uh, they were all convinced after he got through that they were on the wrong trail. When I was talking about the the governor's race, uh, uh, Governor uh, uh, Moody was running for attorney general that year and uh, he had gotten his publicity by prosecuting some uh, people that, uh, uh, that were a murder case that's transferred up from Belleville. It so happened that Belleville down in Austin County uh, was uh, mostly a German and Czech settlement and Catholics and they were uh, being singled out for running out of the community by the Ku Klux Klan and uh, the Klan had a pretty strong organization in Belleville and they said they were going to have a parade and wear their masks well the sheriff down there happened to be of a different frame of mind he said you're not going to walk down the streets of Belleville with your masks on or I'm going sh- I'm I'm to have trouble with you he said he going to bother them is what he said And so they did have the parade, and they had the gun battle, and several of them got killed on both sides. And so it was too hot a place to try to get a jury to try those that were accused of murder, so they transferred them to Travis County and to Williamson County, I think. And uh, Dan Moody was then district attorney, as I said, and he had to prosecute them. And so there's a judge, Crager, who was the leading lawyer down in Belway at that time, and he was on the prosecuting side, too. He was against the Klan. And they hired Papa to be special prosecutor up here. So Governor Moody, and, and uh, or Dan Moody then, district attorney, and my father, and, and Judge Crager from down there. And, and he was later appointed on the Court of Criminal Appeals by Governor Ferguson. They prosecuted these people and, and got, got uh, convictions here in Travis County. And I no- remember they had a party or two out at our home, Watermelon Party. It must have been in the fall or summertime. And that's where I met them. And Dan Moody got so much published in the newspapers that he then run for Attorney General and he got elected Attorney General. And the, But the, the thing I'm getting at is if there was a, also a man named Barry Miller who ran for Lieutenant Governor that year, and Mrs. Ferguson was running for Governor, and Barry Miller was from Dallas was running for Lieutenant Governor, and Dan Moody from Austin was running for Attorney General, and all on, on, on the anti-Klan ticket, uh, or what they called an anti-Klan ticket. And uh, although they never spoke together, anything of that night, But we had stickers, uh, bumper stickers put out, it said, Ma, Barry and Dan, the hell with the Ku Klux Klan. It so happened that all of them got elected. And that was when Mrs. Ferguson, that's the first time she got elected. Dan Moody's first entrance into state politics, and I don't know what happened to Barry Miller after that race. He was lieutenant governor, but but I don't know whether he he didn't run for governor again because Dan Moody became the next governor
1: an idea of how deep-set the feelings were during the Klug trouble. About four years ago I tried a case involving the will of Mrs. Lon Smith Sr. in uh, the district courtroom and uh, I had an old colored man on my jury there and I won the case and uh, we got through late one afternoon it was in Judge Jones's court on the fifth floor of the courthouse and uh, we all came out to get on the elevator. The jurors as, uh, were dismissed then, and the witnesses. and I represented a large part of the Smith family and Bill Nolan, who was a grandson. And uh, everybody went downstairs except this old Negro on the elevator and he seemed to be waiting. I thought he was waiting out of a matter of courtesy and because he was an elderly man, but he wasn't waiting out of that business. He waited for me to get on the elevator and he and I alone. We, we finally got on alone on an elevator to go downstairs. And he said, said, now Mr. Shelton, you don't know me. And uh, I didn't know you and didn't know your father personally. But he said, I was a young man back in the days of the Klu Klux, in the early 20s. And I want to tell you that that, uh, I appreciate what your father did to the native people in those days. He said, uh, there were many nights that we were afraid to have our life. But I remember when Papa died, 1928 it is a uh, November 28 there, he was not a member of the church and so uh, we didn't take him it, uh, his his services were had in our front yard we had a truck and his coffin was on a the truck there or it was in the first but Judge J.D. Moore an Irish Catholic who was a judge he wasn't a preacher he was Papa's friend he came out and preached the eulogy at Papa's funeral or at his, at his uh, that that exercise is there before the funeral in our front yard and there was i guess there were two or three hundred people that came over to in our front yard to be be there at those services and we noticed uh, numbers of the people in south austin who are our friends who had inadvertently become members of the clan and they came to his funeral services and so he was that type of a man they loved him and regardless of what his political affiliation might have been, and all of them certainly respected him for the guts that he had to show. I do believe that I have never had occasion to know a man or an individual in my life that was so fearless as my father was. I don't think he was afraid of a thing in the world, and I I think a little of that rubbed off on my brother Edgar, or he wouldn't have done what he did in the Klu Klux, uh, in the church on the Klu Klux there. And I... And a little of it, I think, rubbed off on my son, Emmett Jr. Some of the instances that I talk about him a little later, I don't think Emmett's afraid of anything. I got in that position when I was in the Marines for about six months or a year, but it doesn't take you long. to. uh, It's it's not inherent in my nature. I've been scared of a lot of things, and am now. But uh, it sure is nice to have a fearless feeling, and I know my father was the most fearless individual I've ever seen. On second thought,
0: I guess I do like to brag. I'm mighty proud of that ragged old flag